So sad to hear about uh, Hilary Mantel, Dame Hilary, of course, to her friend. She spent so much of her life in very intense pain, which seemed somehow to work wonders with her writing, which we saw most spectacularly with her Wolf Hall trilogy. It brought her tons of fame. She won not one but two Booker Prizes. And as you know, the trilogy focused on the life of Thomas Cromwell rather than the more infamous King Henry. The books paint a great portrait of the self-made man who managed to get so close to power and, of course, the women who came and went from Henry's court. It was a privilege to speak to Hillary about the trilogy back in 2015 and I began by asking, as Tony Benn believes, if you can divide all politicians of any stripe into straight men, fixers and maddies. I, th- I suppose, you know, the thing is with Thomas Cromwell, who's the uh, centre of my Wolf Hall books, that he does cross categories. He appears to be guided by principles. He does have beliefs. But it's quite hard to pin him down at any one time and decide what they are. And he operates like a supreme pragmatist. That's his style. He's certainly the fixer par excellence. But I think part of the interest is that it's difficult to pin him down and put him into one category or another. Just when you think you've got him, he changes. Now, he's the perfect figure of meritocracy for our age, as one of your admirers uh, wrote, a survivor of childhood abuse, teenage tearaway, self-made man, but even he can't escape the power of entrenched privilege. That surely is uh, his major appeal to us. It situates him firmly in his time because what he found difficult was to build up any constituency. You see, if it were now, he might have ordinary people behind him. But in those days, they regularly rioted in favour of their right to be governed by lords. They didn't back Cromwell because he was the man of the people. Quite the opposite, they thought that he was perverting the order of nature by rising so high. This was a very hierarchical society. It was unlike ours in 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 that respect and whereas we tend to applaud ambition in those days ambition was a dirty word in the series he's played by mark rylance and uh, with a pretty much a poker-faced performance which makes him all the more terror of terrifying calculating awe-inspiring unstoppable and they're just his good qualities (laughs) One of my ideas about Cromwell is that he presented people with a blank canvas and he was willing to absorb their projections of him. So if they said bad things about him, if they abused him, if they slandered him, he doesn't necessarily try to put them right. He just absorbs all (laughs) those things because he's learning about his enemies by what they say about him. It's as if he's using their eyes as a mirror. And to some extent, that blank face of his allows anyone to project their own feelings onto him, so even the young king becomes uh, increasingly seduced by him. Yes, you see, they project their, their fears, their wishes, and he absorbs it all. 
it's a very interesting the way the uh, uh, the balance is kept between those two men. The the man with almost supreme power, which is Henry, and the man standing in the shadows, Cromwell. Hilary, I'm wondering to what extent your revisionism on, on Cromwell has earned you the ire of the orthodox academic historian. Well, of course, I am not breaking new ground. Thomas Cromwell's centrality was established 30 years ago by Geoffrey Elton, the greatest Tudor historian of his era. Many of today's working historians were Elton's pupils and they had to react against him somewhat to make their own names and that meant they reacted against Cromwell as well. But it was really Elton who broke the ground. Uh, Of course, he wasn't too interested in what kind of man Cromwell was. He defined his achievements. He stated his importance. But this is where a novelist can begin to operate because they do ask these questions. Even, even though you acknowledge you're on, quote, marshy ground. The marshy ground of interpretation, which I share with the academic historians and the popular historians, nevertheless... Um, I'm not making this stuff up, you know. Uh, It's just a question of going back to the sources and not agreeing to accept a bundle of prejudice passed on from one generation to the next. I think there's a divide, really, between Cromwell in academic history, where he's well-known and much studied, and the way he's been represented in popular history and in fiction and in drama, where he's become very two-dimensional and he's been a sort of reach-me-down villain. Well, quite a few people will be shocked when I suggest to them, as, and this is by no means an original observation, that there's something of the Gatsby about him. You know, there's a great mystery about about his life. There's a big missing period in the middle of it. And once again, people projected onto Gatsby all sorts of fantasies. Yes, I think that's that's true. Cromwell, in my books, he doesn't tell stories about himself. If he does, there's a purpose behind it. He's trying to manoeuvre something. Uh, he is concerned with his image, but in a way that is 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 less obvious than than for most people. He's highly manipulative and. He's a good psychologist. He's very observant. I'm taking this from life. These were the things that were observed about him. But he doesn't easily yield to interpretation, either by his contemporaries or by historians. You've said that you were drawn to the story of Henry because of the women. Without the women, no story. But having said that, you've avoided turning the women into myths. As you say, you won't invent greatness where there isn't any. Yes, I think for much of history, you know, the women are ciphers. They don't emerge as distinct personalities. They didn't have much agency. They didn't have much power. And that makes it very difficult, particularly for historical novelists, to realise them as characters. But when you're writing about Henry's reign... 
Well, he happened to be married to two of the most intelligent and combative women of his time, first with Catherine of Aragon, then with Anne Boleyn. These are real personalities who act for themselves. Uh, They're not just ciphers and they're not just pushed around by the men. So although they're not my main focus, it does make it a, a more interesting and appealing story for the modern reader. There is one woman in it who uh, who reaches out and touches the heart, and that's, of course, uh, his wife, Cromwell's wife, not mm. Henry's. And that terrible scene, this is one where, you know, the facial expression does change, the terrible scene where he discovers that she's dead and also her daughters. We don't know much about Elizabeth Cromwell. There's one letter from him to to her, and it's just a little bread and butter letter. It's just a little business letter, really. It's about six lines long. That's all we have to go uh, on. But I had to make a decision about this marriage. Obviously, in some senses, it was an arranged marriage, a business proposition. She was a fairly well-off widow when he married her. But I think they may have had high regard for each other because... After her death, he was so close to her family. Uh, They worked for him, they lived with him. He never cut his ties and moved on. He didn't marry again, which there could have been various reasons for, but we have scanty facts to go on there. And his daughters, you know, they're just names. They're there in his will. Anne and Grace. Well, you, you, do, you once again, out. the scene is the scene of the deaths is is yeah. enigmatic. You don't underline it, and you don't really even explain it. It just happens. But God, it packs a punch. It it packs more of a punch when it's actually shown on television than in the books where it's fairly recessed. Because I'm conscious that we don't know exactly when they died or whether they died together or how close to his wife's death. But I do know that it must have been devastating, the impact of those three losses. It left him with just his son Gregory and all his hopes had to go there. Now, the wonderful thing, or one of the wonderful things about Wolf Hall is that, thank heavens, it's not written in turgid, pseudo-Shakespearean, with pseudo-Shakespearean or biblical dialogue. We don't have to wade through the these and the thous. They're, they're wonderfully accessible and colloquial. Big decision? Not really. Um, natural decision, because you have to privilege clarity, accessibility, What it is, it's modern English, but with a twist. It sometimes echoes or shadows Tudor syntax. I sometimes use an odd word. What I have to do, you see, if I can get people's real words quoted with any authority, I try to use them. That means I have to smooth them into my own work so that you can't see the join. And if I can manage to do that... That, for me, is one of the best parts of writing historical fiction, feeling that you fused your idiom with yours. And what I hate is pastiche and I hate parody. And your language mustn't attract attention to itself to the extent that it gets in the way of communication. 
I uh, I mentioned in passing that you can be wonderfully politically incorrect in your short stories, and that, of course, recalls your most notorious recent outburst, which was for the London Review of Books. You caused a national scandal because, among other things, it targeted the public fascination with the reproductive facilities of royal women like the Duchess of Cambridge. Any regrets about being so uh, outspoken? And I, I must say, absolutely accurate. <laughs> well, thank you. No, I stand behind everything I said there. What happened was that I, I, I gave a quite complex talk about the royal body through the ages, not any particular royal body, uh, the concept of the royal body. And it was an hour long, my talk, and I gave it at the British Library. Ten days went by, nothing happened. <laughs> and uh, and then suddenly I look out of the window and there's the Daily Mail parked across the road. <laughs> and, you know, they've pulled out one or two sentences and they've turned them into an attack on the Duchess of Cambridge, which is turning it around completely because what I said at the end of my talk was... Remember that this young woman is human and don't do to her what she did to Diana. Uh, far from being an attack, it was a plea to remember her humanity and that she was very young and that she needs our consideration. Uh, but, of course, it's more fun to pretend the opposite. So... You can't take it all very seriously. Politicians got roped into it. They should know better. Um, they had not read the lecture. They had no idea what they were talking about, but they were um, tripped into um, denouncing me, and it all got rather ridiculous. But you've survived, I'm delighted to, to observe. Now, the figures of Cromwell, of Henry, the wives, other figures, uh, like Thomas More, now he's a maddie, he's unequivocally a maddie, I would have thought, have parallel lives in the modern day. Lots of critics have compared your Cromwell to, well, Alistair Campbell, former chief strategist for Tony Blair. Was that part of the appeal for you in writing about them, that you could at least that you could project their significance into our century, into our 21st century, and have it uh, help our thought processes? No, actually it wasn't. You know, I believe that the past was not a rehearsal for the present and they were not us in some kind of unevolved form. I think the past is worth studying for its own sake. It's a piety to say we should learn from history, but you notice we never do. And when I'm writing about the 16th century, I really am writing about it. It's not a coded way of writing about the present. I write contemporary fiction, so I, I, I'm able to address it more directly if I want to. One doesn't, of course, deny the resonances because back then, in Thomas Cromwell's day, that decade of the 1530s, it was defining, it, it reshaped the English nation. And that time in English history went on to have great consequences for other countries, other societies. And so I'm not denying its, its importance and that we can learn from it. But 
Cromwell is not standing in for Alistair Campbell or any other figure. I could write about them directly, but then you see, I'm not a journalist. What I value is the long view, and I value um, being able to get perspective on events. You may think, well, 500 years, that's a ridiculously long view, but I want to sort out what's ephemeral and what's enduring. And you can't you can't always do that as a journalist. It's it's where the novelist has an advantage. Look, I think you've also been well served by your televisual translators. What we have, yes, there's some pretty plush uh, costumes and it's about posh people but it is it is astonishingly understated it's all shot in in close to natural light so the interiors are candlelit and there's no additional lighting and uh, so a lot of it's murky and you really got to stare to to make the characters out when they walk out the door it's like coming out of a cinema after a matinee you're suddenly dazzled you know, by the, by the light, by the lighting, by the sunlight, but the performances have a an understated quality. There's nothing tricksy about the direction. It is a very straightforward production. I've been really privileged because Peter Kosminski as director, Peter Strawn as screenwriter. It was the dream team. Um, Peter Strawn so adroit, so quick so instant in his grasp of the age and what mattered. And Peter Kuzminski not carrying, you know, any baggage from historical drama. He he doesn't watch it. He's never made it before. But he is political to his fingertips. And he is a wonderful orchestrator of debate because... In, in his more contemporary political dramas, just as you think you've made up your mind which side you're on, he pulls the rug from under you. And he really engages the intellect as well as engaging the visual sense. And I think he's brought that to Wolf Hall as well, realising that to these people, these debates were urgent, they were proximate, they were happening here and now. They didn't know their own story. And we have all the rippling multiple ironies that come with that distance. But they are just walking in the dark. It's also surprising to people to realise how Henry was hampered, inhibited, even afraid in his own actions. He's constantly looking over his shoulder. He's worrying about who he can trust. He's... He's not as audacious as one expects. His reign was really, I wouldn't say blighted, but this question of having a son, having an heir, it did dominate proceedings. It wasn't some kind of vanity project, wanting a son. He saw it as crucial for securing the stability of the kingdom. You know, England had emerged from a period of corrosive civil war. And 
the ruling classes, it seems as if their hobby was just killing each other. The Tudors had brought some stability, they brought peace, but he certainly wasn't secure and he was prepared to do almost anything, as history shows. Only a woman, but which woman, um, could give him a son? And it's not it's not a question simply of personal feeling and romance. It's a profoundly political question, this this matter of how can Henry breed? You know, there's something about your writing which another thing about it I like, and that is you observe but you don't you you don't actually judge that often, do you? You you look look at these people with a lot of well acceptance, tolerance, even compassion. I think it's important to respect your characters. I think that's the key to it. And not judge, because uh, real wickedness is rare. Most people doing the best they can in the circumstances in which they find themselves. And, of course, I think in in historical writing, it always appears that cause flows, cause and effect flow together, and a historian tries to fathom motive and render it transparent. In life, of course, people often don't understand their own motives, and I think a novelist can bear that in mind, that they operate unconsciously as well as consciously and intentionally. And that was Hilary Mantel talking to me back in 2015. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.